Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We have been reading Paul's first uh, letter to the Thessalonian church together this summer. It is a letter that Paul wrote after hearing that the the young church there, who he had left uh, a lot sooner than he had wanted to, was doing pretty good. Uh, He wrote to uh, encourage them with all kinds of joy. He wrote to teach them about what following Jesus looked like in the world that they lived in, facing the situations that they faced. So we'll pick up where we uh, left off last week. I'll read 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 1 through 8 for us. You can follow along in the order of worship. It's printed there if you'd like. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now, uh, as we think about this word uh, that we just read together and heard together as we talk about it for a few minutes, that 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 thing that we just sang together, that we would find it to be true, that you would uh, come to us through this word and give our jaded senses light, that you would break up whatever stuff in us needs to be broken up um, so that we could see ourselves in you and our way in this world more clearly. Show us the grace of Jesus, your great self-giving love for us, and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, at the, uh, at the risk of being a Gen X pastor who uh, irritates his congregation, uh, I'm going to begin by quoting the late David Foster Wallace. And not only am I going to quote David Foster Wallace, I'm going, to, I'm going to quote his Kenyan College commencement speech from 2005. Now, if you don't know what that is or who he is, great. If you do know what that is or who he is uh, and you're still irritated by it, um, just imagine that my alternative was to quote from The Matrix, and this is way, way better than that, Okay. So here's how he started that commencement address. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys. How's the water? These two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks at the other and says, what's water? (laughs) What's water? Wallace goes on to say that the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, the most important realities are the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. 
He goes on to say, stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude, but in the everyday trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance. (laughs) Wallace uh, is talking about what the philosophers might call uh, our social imaginary. That whole web, that big and complex web of uh, values and symbols and laws and customs and stories through which we see ourselves, through which we see our life together, through which we understand how it is that we're supposed to live life. Sometimes we call this our common sense, right? That, that group of things, that big grouping of things that we just take for granted about life, that we take for granted about how to live life. And it is very hard, very hard to see the things that we take for granted. It is much harder to change them. But that's what Paul is trying to do for this young church here in this part of the letter. As a matter of fact, Paul has just told his friends that he prays for this for them all of the time. We looked at that prayer last week. We didn't get to talk about this one line, so uh, I'm going to quote this one line from verse 10 of chapter 3 where Paul prays, Uh, We pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That word uh, supply that he uses, sometimes it referred to fishermen tending nets. Sometimes it referred to surgeons setting bones. Sometimes it referred to politicians healing factions and bringing them together. It is the work of tending and building and repair. That's what Paul wishes he could do with his friends in that young church. It wasn't that they were missing uh, big pieces of their doctrine or what it was that they believed. The thing that they were missing that he wanted to supply was how their faith should be embodied, how it should be lived out in different situations in their lives. What they were missing was what does it look like to be a Christian in this world? And of course, they were missing that stuff because no one had taught them all of those things. And in order to do that, Paul has to crack into a bunch of stuff that they just took for granted. He had to get into their, their social imaginary and break it up, their common sense, and give them a new way of seeing and a new way of understanding the world and a new way of understanding themselves. And that is not easy, but it is deeply deeply necessary. And I'll tell you what, church, starting with the preacher, you and I need that every day of our lives. Or as uh, Paul puts it in verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk, how you ought to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. In other words, please keep going. (laughs) Please keep moving in the direction that you're moving and you guys are doing great and I want you to keep on moving and going deeper into what it looks like to be a Christian in this world. And if that means that you have to stop for a minute and if that means you have to talk about and think about and pray about what it looks like to be a Christian in a given situation, then by all means, 
let's stop and do that and do it together. That's what Paul wants to come alongside and help them and us do in this part of the letter that we're launching into. He wants to help them understand about work as Christians and, and grief and bereavement as Christians. And as we'll see in a minute, how to use our bodies as Christians. This is a way, Paul says, that we please God. And that right there is the basis for all of our ethical behavior as people who follow Jesus, that we want to please God. Church, this does not mean that we want to earn his grace. This does not mean that we want to earn his grace. We don't earn his grace. He gives his grace to us freely through faith in Jesus. His grace comes to us through faith, the forgiveness, this great mercy and depth of forgiveness that we have received as God's people. It comes only by grace, not by the stuff that we do. We can never earn that. But when we love someone, we want to please them. as we heard in that uh, beautiful gospel lesson that Olivia read. Those who are forgiven much, (laughs) they love much. So it's important to know, what does it look like? What does it look like to please someone? I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert at being married, not by a long shot. You could ask Allison, and she will certainly affirm that I'm no expert in it, but I do know that when uh, I do stuff around the house like wash dishes or carry things to where she would like those things to be or vacuum, it pleases her. (laughs) And that's great because I love her and I would like to please her. So what pleases God? Well, there are a lot of ways, I think, to properly answer that question. Paul answers it really well uh, in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God for you. This is the will of God. That's how it starts. That's pretty simple, pretty helpful. In other words, this is what God wants for you. I think if we want to know what pleases someone, it would help us to know what they want. And this is what God wants for people like you and me, sanctification. That is a very theological and churchy sounding word, I know. Here's what it means. It means to be set apart, and it means to be holy. As uh, Paul puts it later in verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So God wants us to be this set-apart people, this different kind of people, this holy people. That's who he's called us to be, and when we are that people, when we practice the life of that kind of person, it pleases him. But, you know, we have to go one layer deeper, I think, and talk about uh, what holiness really is (laughs) and what holiness really means. Because the truth is, in the English language, the word holy uh, often uh, carries with it some negative connotations. I mean, I would guess that the last ten times I heard the word holy outside of a church setting it probably three-quarters of the time carried with it a negative kind of condescending connotation. And even without those connotations, holiness is often seen primarily as a negative state. It is the absence of something, the absence of moral fault. But what if, what if, church, that is only a teeny part of the picture? 
What if there is more for people like you and me to know about holiness? And here's where I think that you and I might need some uh, busting up of things that we take for granted, a little breaking up of our uh, common sense. Here's where I think people like you and me might need a new imaginary of holiness, because holiness, holiness is actually a positive and dynamic force for the good of our world. Holiness reclaims the lost. Holiness restores the broken. And it does that because holiness is a reflection of the God of self-giving love who is reconciling everything to himself in Jesus. I want to say all that again. (laughs) Holiness is a dynamic, positive force For the good of our world, holiness reclaims the lost. Holiness restores the broken. Because holiness is a reflection of the self-giving love of God who is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus. So through Moses, as we heard in the Old Testament lesson, God tells his people a very simple thing. (laughs) Be holy because I am holy. That's who I am. God is holy. God is the God who shows complete fidelity. God is the God who does not defraud. God is the God who does not take advantage. God is the one who lifts up the oppressed. God is the one whose throne is built on the foundation of justice in this world. God is the one who abounds in steadfast love. God is the one who's self-giving and, and sin-forgiving and world-remaking love has been shown to us in the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That's who God is. He is holy. He is Set apart like no other. And here's one of the things, church, here's one of the things that's just absolutely true about every one of us in here. If we are a human being, we have been made in that God's image. And part of our work in this world is to reflect all of his good and all of his beauty and all of his love and all of his justice out into the world. (laughs) It's what we've been made for. And when people who follow Jesus practice holiness, we do that. We reflect the true God and we say, you know, with our bodies, with our actions, sometimes even with the things that we say, when we do that, we say there is a God who shows fidelity. There is a God who does not cheat or defraud. There is a God who does not take advantage of. There is a God who will bring true justice When every human court fails, he will not fail to bring justice. There is a God who loves you. There is a God who did not seek his good, your good, who didn't seek his good over your own. There is a God, we say, with our bodies, with our voices, with our actions, who gave up everything to have you. Our holiness, your holiness, my holiness, it says all of those things about God simply because to be holy is to reflect the God of love who is holy. (laughs) And part of the great mission of the church is to reflect who God is out into this world. And when we do that, it pleases him (laughs) because that's what he wants. He's made us for that. He is remaking us in Jesus for that. 
And so holiness is not some uh, small, mincing, petty, box-checking thing. Holiness is not like, well, I did this, I did that, I did this, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. Jesus, Paul says, Jesus, Paul says to the church in Corinth, has become our holiness. And to practice holiness is simply to reflect him in all of his reclaiming grace, in all of his restoring grace out into the world. Our holiness, our sanctification is lining up our behavior to more truly reflect Jesus into this world. That's what our holiness is. That's what our sanctification is. It is our life lived for the life of the world. That's a new social imaginary about holiness. (laughs) It's the true story of holiness and what it is and what it's meant for. And so with that in our heads swirling around, remaking things, cracking things up, we can hear as Paul applies this in a really, really specific way in verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality. And then he goes on to add two further instructions that expand on that, that clarify that. In verse 4, he says, everyone should control their own body in holiness and in honor. And in verse 6, he says, no one should transgress another. No one should wrong another in any of these matters. What Paul is talking about, what he is asking the church to hold to is to refrain from any kind of sexual relationship before marriage, and to have fidelity between a woman and a man in marriage. That's what he's talking about. And I know, I know that the church has been accused uh, at best of having antiquarian and unrealistic views of human sexuality. I know that. I know that the church has sometimes been accused of having a low view of sexuality or a repressive one. I understand that. And I'll be honest, those accusations have at times been certainly justified. The church has messed up both its teaching and its practice of human sexuality. The church has been guilty at times of some kind of weird bodies are bad and spirits are good kind of dualism that has nothing to do with Scripture. And we get things all twisted and messed up. But I want you to know that that as true as those accusations have been, they are not because of Scripture's teaching on this. They're not because of Paul's teaching on this. So let me tell you, uh, in the most PG way that I can, what folks in the first century living in cosmopolitan places like Thessalonica took for granted about human sexuality. Let me tell you what their social imaginary was about this huge part of our lives. I think it's important to understand the water this young church was swimming in that they couldn't even see. So here's what was taken for granted. What was taken for granted was that for males in particular, sex was an appetite, and then it was an appetite that simply could be sated and should be sated and would be sated in whatever way was wanted. That's what was taken for granted. What was taken for granted was the treating others as a means, as an end to sating that appetite 
it was common sense that you would do that. And that meant mistresses and concubines and prostitution. That meant the regular systematic abuse of female slaves. Kyle Harper, who teaches classics at the University of Oklahoma, who has written on the Christian transformation of morality in late antiquity, he writes that women in these instances were simply required to cope with the infidelities of the men in their lives. Just cope. That kind of behavior was deeply ingrained. That kind of behavior was taken for granted. Cicero, who wrote a hundred years before Paul, said that any other attitude towards sex than this one was just contradictory to the law of the present age. It doesn't make sense in our age to think any other way. It was completely in line, though, with the gods of the pantheon who lived this way, who sated their appetites in this way, was completely in line with the lives and reputations of the Caesars and life in the empire. This is precisely Paul's point. When he says in verse (laughs) 5 that what he's asking the church to do is in stark, deep contrast to the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Church, that was the bad fruit of the pagan world. That was the bad fruit of the social imaginary of sex in late antiquity, untold pain and abuse and hurt and brokenness. This world, as Paul put it so pointedly, that did not know God. And so what was needed, what was needed was a new set of things. A new set of things to take for granted, a new common sense, a new social imaginary about what sex is and was. And instead of being an appetite to be sated at all costs, it is a gift. And like all of the good gifts that God gives to his people, the purpose of it is not self-gratification. The purpose of it is joyful self-giving. The purpose of it is to reflect the joyful, self-giving, unabandoned love of God for the world. It's not a power game in which some exert and control and others tolerate and live with. It is not. The Christian faith taught that there was mutuality, that there was reciprocity, that there was consent entered into this. The Christian faith taught that the bodies and the wives of husbands, and wives, they, they belong to one another. <laughs> so not only should there only be fidelity in marriage, there's no room for abuse, no room for violence, no room for cruelty in marriage. It should be filled with the unselfish desire to love and to protect and to cherish the other. And that that desire is beautifully and rightly and properly pictured in the physical union of marriage. And then this set-apart people living in this set-apart, very different way, in turn, picture the unselfish, protecting, cherishing love of God out into the world. It's not a low view of sex. (laughs) It's It's a wildly, unbelievably, breathtakingly high view of sex. And... Church, that the practice of this ethic and that the practice of this holiness, where it has been practiced and observed, that this practice has led to the reclamation of the lost, that it has led 
to the restoration of the broken, that ed- it has led to the restraint of horrific abuse. It's just a matter of historic fact. And just as importantly, it's a matter of existential fact for people sitting all around you and for Christians and the neighbors of Christians all over the world for millennia. Paul knows what it sounds like, you know. He knows what it sounds like to weave a new common sense about sexuality in a world that holds to so many opposite and contrary views. Believe me, he knows it. (laughs) It's not unlike us saying these things. And I think that's probably why he says, look, I'm not making this up. I'm, I'm not stating a preference or anything. He says this comes back with the judgment of God. And in verse 6, he says the Lord is an avenger in these things. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like to those who had been abused? To those who have been taken advantage of sexually? Can you imagine what that would have sounded like to those who had been wounded so deeply and trafficked and consumed and cast off? I know some of us don't need to imagine. It would have sounded like good news. It would have sounded like hope that even though there might never be recognition, even though there might never be redress from any human being or any human court, there is a God who sees and there is a God who loves them and there is a God who will finally work justice for them in all of the broken places and who will finally heal forever and for good. And in verse 8, Paul ends with this really bracing reminder to the young church and to us that God gives us his Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's God who called us first in love to follow him in holiness. It is God who offers us grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing when we stumble in this way. And church, there is not one of us, not one of us, who has not stumbled in thought or in deed in this critical part of our life. And it is God who in those moments offers forgiveness and grace and mercy. As we heard Jesus (laughs) with that woman who met him in the Pharisee's house. It is God himself, Paul says, who will ultimately establish our hearts in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So our holiness rests on the strong shoulders of Jesus from beginning to end. It is ultimately his work of grace for us, past and present and future. And our response in this present moment is to walk in a way that pleases the one who called us first, now and always in love. And even in that, God comes alongside us by his spirit, showing us where to walk, gently calling us back when we wander away, giving us everything that we need to be those who reflect the self-giving love of Jesus, the cherishing and protecting love of Jesus for the life of the world. Let me pray for us.
Father, we ask, <laughs> kind of like Paul prayed for that church there, uh, that you would do the work of tending, that you would do the work of building, that you would do the work of repair for us in whatever ways we need those things, that you would supply what is lacking in our faith in the way that we imagine how we ought to live and love and be in this world. Father, we ask that you would keep this promise that you will establish us at the coming of Jesus in holiness and help us to be willing participants in that process on our side. Do this so that we will mature and grow up in our faith. Do this so that we will be a set-apart people who reflect your love to a broken world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.